Welcome to the Legally Speaking podcast, powered by Kasoon Car. I'm your host, Rob Hanna. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Oren Begum. Oren is a full-time lawyer turned part-time poet. Oren has attracted high-profile media attention for her poetry work, including the likes of the BBC. She currently works for a magic circle law firm, Clifford Chance, in London, sitting in their aviation, shipping and rail finance team. So, a very big welcome, Oren. Thanks, Rob. Thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. And before we go through all of that amazing work, we do have an icebreaker question here on the Legally Speaking podcast, which we ask our guests to answer, which is around suits. So on the scale of one to 10, 10 being very real, how real would you rate the TV series Suits in terms of its reality? Is it bad if I say I haven't watched what? No, tons of our guests have said they haven't seen it. So it really doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. So based on that, you can just give it a zero. Yeah, I, I would say so. I mean, I always get the Suits reference whenever I introduce myself to anybody new and say I'm a lawyer um, and I just don't get it. So I would say zero. <laughs> okay, fair enough. And that's a wise, a wise answer. So look, we want to go through so many things today, um, and I, I think you and I connected through an article you're featured in via The Lawyer, but let's start at the beginning. Tell us a bit about mm-hmm. your family background and your upbringing. So I was born in uh, a little village in Silet in Bangladesh. Um, Silet is like a, a northern kind of region of Bangladesh. It's not, it's not in the capital. Um, so I was born there, um, and my at the time when I was born, actually, my dad was in the UK, just trying to kind of gather up and save up enough money to kind of then bring over myself, my mum, and my little sister. So we then moved to the UK when I was about three years old. Neither of my parents really or, or I knew any single word of English. So um, you know, starting off, it was it was quite difficult. You know, going to schools, having to learn English, all of that kind of stuff, um, and then also having to move around a lot because obviously being an immigrant, you just, you know, you have to go where the work is. Um, and that's what dad had to do. And we had to just basically follow him. So that meant before the age of 10, I'd gone to five different primary schools and immigrant life, like everywhere, it's not easy. You know, we weren't well off by any stretch of the imagination at all. And and we were also rendered homeless at certain points. Um, so it was, yeah, it was, it was a really difficult kind of upbringing um, because we just, you know, we didn't have, you know, disposable income. So we basically were living like um, paycheck to paycheck, really. And then obviously, uh, obviously more siblings came along. Um, we finally ended up kind of settling in Tower Hamlets. And because we were given a council council flat here, I went to uh, secondary school here. I finished my sec- GCSEs here. Um, and it's funny because where I live on the Isle of Dogs, I, you know, I still live in the council council flat today. But the only difference is my parents have managed to, you know, get gather enough money to actually buy it. But um, the funny thing is, I've lived in the shadows of Canary Wharf for you know for all my kind of formative years since about of age of ten, twenty six now. So it, it's uh, it's funny because I never really thought that you know somebody like me from my kind of background going to a standard state comprehensive secondary school, um, whatever, I kind of really end up uh, in Canary Wharf because there is a huge divide between the people who live on the island and the people who work in Canary Wharf. And I never thought I would be somebody to to kind of bridge that gap. It's almost been like the American dream in a sense, like, you know, coming from practically nothing to now, you know, working for one of the biggest and best law firms in, in the world. It's not something I ever thought would happen to me or my family even thought would happen. But, you know, I can only say, you know, I've been very blessed and I've worked really hard to, to get to where I am. And that's just such an amazing, inspiring story. The, the message I get from that is that you know, anything is possible 
you know, regardless of where you start within reason. That's just such, uh, you know, amazing how far you've come. So let's dive into that a little bit more. So did you always want to be a lawyer? Um, if not, what did you want to be? I come from a, a, a South Asian background, so I guess um, <laughs> my parents probably always wanted me to be a doctor. Um, yeah. I mean, I was, I, was, I was good at science, but I don't think I enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed other, other things. Um, I didn't necessarily know that I wanted to be a lawyer from an incredibly early age. I just knew it, it was something I, I kind of enjoyed. So when I was in year eight, so about the age of 13, 14, I, I took part in a magistrate's mock trial kind of competition thing uh, to build my confidence because before that, I was extremely shy. Um, I really didn't want to say anything in class. So my, my teachers encouraged me to do it as a kind of confidence building thing. I was chosen as, as the prosecution barrister. So yeah, I had to prepare a case, you know, cross-examine witnesses, do all of that kind of stuff, and then present it in front of a real magistrate's, um, at Bow magistrate's court. And so it was like a whole inter-school thing. Um, so I was up against other, other, other schools and other students. And then I, I won my case. And I think that really gave me a kind of a direction to follow. Obviously, that was down the whole barrister route. Obviously, I'm clearly not a barrister now. But I think that was the first time I actually thought, wow, okay, this is something I'm good at and I enjoy. I like the skills involved. I like analyzing things. I like questioning things coming up with good, logical, concise arguments to convince people, all of that kind of stuff. I really enjoyed doing it. And I found out that I was good at it as well. So that really gave me a sort of direction to follow in terms of career. Obviously, then things happened and things took different turns. And I, you know, now I'm a, I'm a solicitor, not a barrister. But I think that was the first time, I think. So it was quite early on, I guess, in my kind of educational career about, you know, when I was at the age of 13, 14, that I thought, okay, this is something I'm good at. Um, let's see where, where, where this takes me. I don't think it was until I finished my GCSEs and my A-levels that I kind of really started thinking, okay, well, maybe it is a possibility that I can actually end up somewhere, you know, with a lot of influence. Um, so, yeah. Great. Well, I think, you know, you've, you've outlined that very, very well. So the other, the other question, you know, a lot of our listeners like to know is, you know, how hard did you find it actually securing a training contract? We know, arguably, like you say, one of the best law firms in the world, you know, talk us through that journey. So I was applying for training contracts um, in, I think, the Christmas of my second year at, at university. I mean, it was really hard. I mean, I, I under—I guess like a lot of people, I just underestimated how much effort it takes and effort and time it takes, um, you know, to do a really good training contract application. I think I did seven applications. I got rejected from six. So that was uh, that was like a really big kind of reality check um, because it was, it, you know, they're really competitive. And when you haven't grown up in the circles to know kind of what to say, how to say it, how to present yourself, you know, that kind of stuff, you haven't got a network. It is really difficult when you're kind of having to learn that kind of stuff from scratch. Um, you know, you've got a, an empty slate and you have to be able to populate it somehow. Um, and yeah, it was really difficult. You know, I attended as many of the you know on-campus workshops that different law firms had put on and stuff. But I think there's something to be said for having a network that is supportive and can actually give you the advice that you won't necessarily hear from you know the mouths of recruiters or graduate recruitment or you know or, or anybody like that. You know, I think there's something to be said for that. Um, so yeah, no, it was really difficult. I mean, I applied for a, a vaccine at Clifford Chance and I got rejected from Clifford Chance. So that was, wow. that was, yeah, exactly. So that was a, a really kind of, uh, that was like heartbreaking because I think I had a chance up on my list for, from a very early, uh, early kind of stage of my life. And I, and I think it, by the time I got to university, it was kind of, I wanted 
you know, to, I, I just wanted to be at Clifford Chance. I felt like that's where I would get the best training. And when I got rejected from them, that really, really hurt. But I think one thing I've learned from my journey is to always try again. I've, I don't know what has been with me, but my entire life, anything I've wanted, I've had to try twice. And the second time round, I've been, I've been, I've had better luck. Yeah, um, so yeah, so I, I, I applied for the vacation scheme, got rejected after the assessment center, was absolutely distraught. Um, but, but funnily enough, I did a, I did a vaccine at a different firm, and I really enjoyed it as well. So, um, but I did end up reapplying for the training contract at Clifford Chance, um, and then you know by you know having better luck, uh, you know a second time round, I managed to get the training contract, which I guess is the more important one. Um, out of the vaccine and the, and the training contract, but um, yeah, it was it was a difficult uh, kind of it was a very difficult process of applying for training contracts. You know, having not come from a, a traditional background in terms of um, I say in, in inverted commas because you know you like I say you don't know the jargon, you don't know what to say, you don't know how to say it. You know, you don't know the types of conversations you should be having necessarily with lawyers and things like that. Um, so yeah, it was difficult, but I think what I got from it was perseverance is that, you know, you learn from the mistakes that you've made in, in the initial rounds um, and then you, you improve upon them. And, and, and then, and you also pester graduate recruitment for feedback <laughs> because, um, you know, I, I believe a good graduate recruitment team does, does provide feedback. CC's team does try and try their best to provide feedback and to see as many candidates succeed, succeed as they can. Yeah. And what I love about that is, you know, and it's, it's just reality of life. You know, if you're going to let knockbacks get you knocked back and down and out, then that's just the way it's going to be. You've got to get back on the horse and reapply. And that's a great success story of you with, with Clifford Chance. So tell us more about life at Clifford Chance. You know, what do you enjoy most? How are you finding things with COVID-19 and how's that affecting you? So, I mean, I'll start with my training contract. I think my training contract was intense. I mean, I didn't expect anything less. But yeah, it was, you know, when you first come out of university and that's like your first real proper job, it is quite scary. But I think it definitely, I, I definitely got the kind of exposure to clients, to really high profile deals um, and really good work that I was expecting after the chance. So I, I definitely wasn't dif- disappointed. I think one of the highlights of my training contract was work, was in the assets team itself, um, working on a um, aviation finance for Bangladesh Biman. So that, that's the Bangladesh's national flag carrier. And um, they were acquiring their first kind of set of Boeing 787 Dreamliners from Boeing. Uh, and it's government owned, but essentially, so there's a lot of really high profile people on board, um, you know, working for the financiers. It was, yeah, it was a really, really good deal. And I think when it, I did the closing call for the first aircraft, and we had representatives from Boeing, from Biman, and from, you know, Bangladesh government, all that kind of stuff. It was amazing for me because obviously I felt like I was coming full circle, you know, having come from a really poor background, you know, in, in a little village in Bangladesh to now actually kind of helping them do such a huge and historic deal for the country. It felt like I was giving back back something to my to my community and um, it felt really good. Um, so, and it, you know, it involved a lot of drafting and a lot of kind of, you know, communication with a lot of high profile people. Um, and I never thought I'd get that. And that was only in my second seat. So I felt incredibly privileged to be on a training contract that gave me that kind of exposure um, and that kind of freedom to kind of run a deal like that. So that I had a, I had a really good time doing that. So my training contract was really good. I, I learned an incredible amount. And then I did a, uh, an international secondment out in Frankfurt in the projects team. And I had a great time there, learned a lot. Yeah, it was just, it was a really great kind of training contract. I, I felt like I developed really solid skills that I needed to kind of excel as an associate. And then when, when, when it came around to qualifying, I was absolutely petrified because I was like, I was a trainee yesterday. Now I'm an associate. Now people expect me to actually know stuff. 
Um, so, so that was quite a difficult kind of transition. And I started um, during the, like, from the September to December kind of Christmas period, which was very busy. I prefer doing it that way around, you know, throw yourself into the deep end, learn as much as possible, and then go forward. Um, and now with COVID-19, I mean, it's, it's like an unprecedented thing. I've never experienced something like that. A lot of the partners, you know, I've spoken to haven't really experienced something like this either. So I think we're all kind of in, a, in the same boat. Um, I think with the, the thing about being in, in asset finance and spe- especially in aviation is that aviation obviously needs help right now. And so there, there is a lot of work going around um, and a lot of people need our advice and our help. So I've, I, you know, I've been working from home since I think for about two and a half months now. Um, so we, we've been busy. We've had work come through, um, you know, even if it's not our traditional kind of stuff that we're doing. It's good because now is the time to see if our, all our, you know, all the drafting that we did, if it's tight enough and, you know, if it actually works. So that was, now is the time to put it to the test, right? So, Just a um, bit. yeah, it's, yeah, it's been, uh, it's been a really, really interesting time to be a lawyer, especially so early on in, in my career. It's been, um, you know, speaking to the partners and stuff, it's a, they're saying that, you know, it's really, it's a really good time to actually develop really good skills and learn new things and it really has um you know i've been drafting documents that i don't i didn't think i'd ever be drafting so it's been a it's been a really great experience obviously i you know i miss my colleagues i miss the office but yeah it's been um it's been interesting um and i think there'll be a lot of lessons learned from this experience both in terms of the work we do but also how uh, law firms function generally yeah. Do you see Clifford Charles moving to remote four-day working and four days of the week, or do you not see that happening ever? I think. I mean, I can't be sure, but I think. Um, I think the partnership or the leadership generally has kind of really seen how working from home is not a bad thing, and, and I and I don't think necessarily they thought it was a bad thing before, but I think there was an element of uncertainty about how working from home would work. Um, and clearly it has, it, you know, we've got, we've done as much work, if not more, um, than we would run whilst we were in the office. Um, and people have adjusted to it very well. You know, we've got trainees still and, and they've been adjusting to it as well. So it's, um, I think it's kind of really opened up the eyes of a lot of kind of more traditional kind of leadership that, you know, to show them that, you know, working from home isn't a, a thing, you know, reserved for the trendy startup type of, a type of company, even big traditional companies like like Clifford Chance and you know like other magic circle firms and big law firms we you know it's completely possible as you know we've got a really good and strong IT team um across the globe um that are really supporting us and all the other other business support support stuff they've been really they've been working night and day to make it possible and you know here we are you know two two and a half months you know after the fact and we're still doing really really well I can't be sure whether there'll be um you know the option for a four-day week or whatever but I think working from home I think people will be way more comfortable kind of with that concept now that we've been doing it for so long and we've still been, you know, you know, making money. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that's, uh, you know, an interesting debate that's going to go on and on um, because certain law firms, you know, I think Denton's announced they've got the four day week till the end of the year. So it's just yeah. going to be, you know, interesting to see how different firms of different sizes all react. But look, it's not all law in your world. So I said at the start, you know, full-time lawyer, part-time poet. And so you've done so much amazing poetry work. So let's start there at the beginning as well. What inspired you to start poetry? So I've always loved reading, um, whether it be poetry, whether it be prose. So I've always had my kind of head in a book all the time. Um, and obviously studying poetry at GCSE, um, you know, I love reading it. 
But one thing I noticed was the lack of poets from a person of colour's point of, point of perspective. I loved reading, you know, obviously the traditional English classics and stuff. But I would, I, you know, I really wanted to see people with my type of name or my type of skin colour. I really like to see poetry from their perspective. And I never got to see that at GCSE or even afterwards. I studied English literature at A-level as well. Still didn't see that there. I've never written poetry myself before until the final year of university. Um, and I just picked up a pen and I just had some really angsty feelings going on. And I just like, it just like, essentially it was like a, a, a word vomit on a page. Um, and I had a really good time. And then, you know, I, I wrote it and I just stuck it in the drawer and never looked at it again. Um, until I, until I started my training contract, um, and I realized one day that, you know what, I haven't done something on a weekend for myself in a very long time because I was just so tired from the week. <laughs> um, so one day I dragged, I dragged myself and my brother out to Shoreditch where they were having an open mic night. Um, and I just wanted to go and see what it was about. And it was an open mic night specifically for South Asian women. And my brother was like, well, you've written a poem. You, you go up and form. And I was like, no, no, no. Um, I was absolutely petrified to share something so kind of personal. Uh, but eventually I gathered up the courage to um, to get up on stage and I shared my poem. It was the only one I'd ever written and I got such a great response. And people kept on asking me, you know, do you have any social media? Can I follow you anywhere? You know, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, a few months later, once I'd been to a few more open mic nights, I started my poetry page. And yeah, I think it just all went from there. Um, I entered the Asia House um, 2018 spoken word poetry slam um, again not thinking anything would come of it I just entered a, a poem that I'd written and you know they picked it up and they were like yeah you're one of our finalists and then the BBC got in touch and I was like what's happening uh, and they were like yeah we'd love to cover your story you know about your poetry and what what inspired it and you know and things like that and yeah, I got coverage from the BBC and I was on the, one of their world news shows on their website so yeah it was a it's been a really interesting journey a journey that I never really expected I just started it because you know it was something I enjoyed it was something so different from work I loved you know that it kept both things interesting you know I had something really different from work so then when I went to work it was you know work was still interesting and then once I'd finished work poetry was interesting so it was just something I did because I, I enjoyed it I didn't think anything would come of it but since then I've gotten commissions I've gotten you know um, paid opportunities to got be headlining shows so I've had a really interesting journey with poetry and um, it's been great, especially through Instagram, you know, connecting with poets from not just the UK, but all of the world. Um, and especially with the whole COVID-19 thing, you know, doing virtual open mic nights has been really cool because obviously you get to connect with people from everywhere, not just people from the UK or from people from London. Um, so it's been a really great journey and, I, and I'm so grateful for it. Yeah, and I mean, it's gone, it's exploded for you, right? You've got thousands of followers, global audiences, and, you know, you've had so much success. You're even being modest in the way that you, you describe that. So let, let's dig into that because you're not shy of media appearances. You've had lots of exposure in the legal <laughs> world. As I mentioned, you featured on The Lawyer recently and even broader, you know, than that, BBC News. So I think it was, in fact, through um, that feature I mentioned at the top, we got in touch. But can you tell us more about that featured article on The Lawyer and what that was all about? Yeah, so I think it was part of um, International Women's Day. Um, so uh, at Active of Charles, we celebrate International Women's Day all month long, which is great. So um, one of our Crescent Communications um, officers got in touch with me, um, telling me about this series that the lawyer has for International Women's Day every year called Women Against Adversity. And they were like, you know, we'd really, you know, we know about your story and we'd really like for you to be featured as someone to represent TC. And I was like, yeah, of course. So I, I, you know, I put together something and, and it got submitted to the lawyer and um, 
I was really surprised when it was chosen to be featured. And I think the, basically the article outlines essentially my story from beginning to end. Well, not even to end. I think I'm so, I'm so early on in my career, I was surprised <laughs> it was chosen. So it, it just, you know, I outlined, you know, like I say, from, you know, from, from our conversation, you know, when I moved here first and then coming up against a lot of challenges, uh, you know, I live in a, in a bar, you know, one of the most deprived boroughs of the UK. So there are a lot of issues, not just financially, but, you know, in terms of social issues, behavioral issues that were faced in school, how that prevented me from necessarily getting the kind of, you know, attention from teachers that I necessarily needed to kind of achieve my potential to even things like, you know, for how finances almost stopped me from going to to, to college. So I went to college um, between the years of 2010 and 2012. Between those years, the coalition government got formed and um, I re- relied heavily on the educational maintenance allowance, which gave me money to kind of travel to college and buy books and all that kind of thing, all those kind of things that I needed. And when the coalition government came in, came into power and they got rid of that, I really had to reevaluate my choices because asking my parents for, for money just wasn't an option. They had, you know, four other mouths to feed, a, a roof to keep over, over our heads, bills to pay. So I was just like, I'm not going to ask my parents for money. I just can't bring myself to do that. So I decided to work three jobs um, over over the weekends to pay my way out. And I did that for two years. And it was hard. It was really, really hard because obviously you're, work, you're going to, to, to college. You know, my college was two boroughs away. So I'd wake up at 6 a.m. every day, go to college and then, you know, work until about 9, 10 p.m. at night, Monday to Friday, and then wake up again at, you know, 8 a.m. on a Saturday and Sunday and work three jobs to to kind of just, you know, maintain myself and be able to go to college. So that kind of stuff was really difficult. But looking back on it, obviously in hindsight, every, everything looks better. But at the time it was really hard. But now I realize it kind of really taught me the value of money. When you don't work for your money, it's um you kind of think it's not really a real tangible object, but it really is. It makes a huge difference to people's lives. And it, re- it really made me appreciate how much work and effort my parents had to go through to keep a roof over our head and, you know, food in our stomachs. So um, that was a, a big thing. Um, and then it just outlined my journey into university. Uh, so I was at Worcester College in Oxford studying law. Um, but before that, when I applied, I got rejected at the interview round and I was really, really upset. And like I was telling you, everything in my life I had to do twice to, to kind of uh, get to succeed. So uh, the first time um, when I interviewed, I, I, I got rejected and I was really, really upset because I had my heart set on it. And then at the same time, I took, I'd taken part in a mooting competition with the BPP School of Law. Um, I think that's when they were like first starting out. And their first prize was uh, an all, all expenses and fees paid place on their LLB program. And, and I managed to win that competition and I didn't expect that. So I had, you know, I had a free ride to university on one hand, um, but in my heart of hearts, I knew I wanted to reapply to Oxford. So, you know, everybody was telling me, don't take this year out, take um, BPP up on their offer. Um, or one of the other uni- unis you've got an offer from, you know, don't do this. Um, you don't want to risk it. And I didn't want to risk it. I was petrified. But in my heart of hearts, I knew if I didn't, I would regret it for the rest of my life. So I was like, I'm not, I'm not going to listen to anybody. I'm not going to listen to my parents, my teachers, my friends. Uh, but I, and I took a year out and I, and I reapplied to Oxford. And, you know, second time round, you know, I had better luck. And um, I had, uh, but, you know, I, I managed to get a place at, at the college of my choice and with a full scholarship. So I was like, I really didn't expect that at the end. I was just like, I just want to go to Oxford. I don't, I don't need a scholarship, but um, I got offered a full scholarship from the Oxford Centre for Islamic Studies. Um, so they paid all my fees and get, they gave me a maintenance allowance. So I managed to leave university with no debt, despite being the generation or the year that the coalition government um, increased the 
tuition fees. So I, I was in a very blessed position when I got into university and when I left. So um, yeah, it just outlines my entire journey. And it is about women against adversity. And there were so many barriers in my path, you know, my finances, my religious background, my ethnic background, all of that kind of stuff that, you know, in, in, in various contexts were barriers to me entering the law. Um, but at every point, kind of, I, took, I had to think about it. And I was like, you know what, are you going to live the life that other people think other people think you should live? Or are you going to live the life that you want to live? And obviously the latter was was going to be much more difficult. But I think for certain people in this world, I think you're always going to have to take the path less trodden and you, it's going to be harder, but eventually you get to where you want to be. And I think the whole point of my article was to say that even if you're in a position where you don't want to be in right now, and it's going to be a tough path and path, tough journey to get to where you want to be, it's always going to be worth it in the end. Otherwise, yeah. you look back at yourself in 10, 20 years time and say, you know what, if only I'd made a different decision at that point, my life could be something else. And I never want to say that. So, you know, as, as hard as decisions can be, I took the more difficult decisions and traveled the less trodden paths. And, you know, I'm, I'm, here I am today. And I'm only like a few months qualified. I'm still so early in my, in my kind of career that I, I know there'll be dis- difficult decision, decisions to make in the future as well. I'm just grateful that in a way that for all the hardships that did happen, because it, they taught me so much more than some of my counterparts would know at, at this point, you know, in terms of maturity, in terms of being able to deal with difficult situations. I think I'm in a very good position to do that going forward, um, having learned the lessons I have. But it was a really great article. And then I got so much feedback and so many messages from so many different people who'd read it and said, this has been so inspiring. It's inspired me to continue my journey despite going through so, much, so many different things. And I was really overwhelmed with the amount of like messages and, and emails that I, I was getting and phone calls I was getting from partners from all over the, all over the network. And I was just like, wow, I didn't know so many people read The Lawyer. Um, and yeah, it was a really great response to have because it, I felt, I, I was really scared. You know, that was the first time I'd really outlined everything about my life in such a public way. And especially in a, in a publication that, a lot of the legal world and a lot of them, you know, people from work would be reading. I'd never, you know, spoken about those kind of things with, yeah. with any with many of my colleagues. So it was a really personal article. But I'm glad I did because I feel like more of these conversations need to be had, especially when it comes to diversity and inclusion in the law. There's so many invisible factors. You know, it's not just about gender and race uh, and religion. It's, you know, there's so many invisible factors like socioeconomic background, you know, that affects affects people getting into law as much as anything else, uh, and th- and these things aren't sp- spoken about. And I feel like the conversation needs to be had, and 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 that's why I I was like, you know, as uncomfortable as it might might seem, I have to get it out. The article was a product of that. Yeah, no, absolutely, and that's where you know we we're keen to give you a platform to kind of build on that as well, because I think it definitely is a conversation that needs to be had. And just some undertone messages from that, I, I completely agree. I mean, you know you best. So, you know, not necessarily your parents or influencers or friends, you know, myself, I've taken, you know, number of risks throughout my career that probably people have blinked or sort of thought or looked sideways, no way. I think you put that very nicely in terms of you've got to take the less trodden path, because if you want to get to where your goals are, you're going to have to take some element of risk and you've got to go all in and make it happen. So I just love the fact that, you know, you've managed to get from, from your situation to where you are now. It's a very commendable and inspiring story. So thanks for sharing that. And just as a sort of wrapping up um, on that perspective, what would you give us some sort of last pieces of advice to aspirational lawyers or current lawyers or even partners just from your experiences that you'd like to share? I get this question a lot and I come from a very normal background. I, I don't feel like there's anything necessarily like I'm, I'm no different from anybody else. So I think the only thing I can tell people is like if I can do it, if I can 
literally come from like nothing and still make it. I think anybody else can. It's just a matter of really wanting what you want. I think when you want something bad enough that you will take, edu- you know, calculated and educated risks and you will work night and day to make your dreams a reality. Um, and I think it's, re- it's really about asking yourself, how badly do I want this? And if you do want it bad enough, you will do what it takes to, to get to where, where you want to be. And even if that means being uncomfortable, I've, you know, like I say, I've not grown up in the traditional circles. It was really uncomfortable for me to know, like learn how to network to know what conversations to have with certain people. It was a really uncomfortable kind of journey for me, but it's only in those kind of uncomfortable, you know, you know, coming out of your comfort zones that you're going to grow. And so I think my advice is be comfortable with being uncomfortable because that's where the growth happens and that's where your risks pay off. So um, just go out there and do whatever it takes uh, to get to where you want. If you want it bad enough, that's the main thing. If you want it bad enough, you will do what it takes. Yeah. It's mindset, isn't it, at the end of the day? I think you just Mm -hmm. need to block out the distractions, block out the negative people, not block out the naysayers and just get on with it. So I just love Mm -hmm. that that sort of mentality. So, you know, you've got tons and tons of followers. You've got a massive online presence, but people who aren't already following you or following your social media, how can they get in touch? How can they follow you? Do you want to give a shout out? Yeah, sure. That'd be great. Um, So I'm on Instagram at Poetry by Orini. Even if you type type in my name, Orin Begum, it'll come up. Um, I'm on Instagram, I'm on Twitter, I'm on Facebook. So feel free to follow me and follow my poetry and my journey. I do spoken word pieces. I do written pieces. Um, I do all, all sorts of different things. So get involved in the conversations that we're having and let's connect. Um, I'm always up for speaking to different people, different perspectives. Um, it's a great platform. Instagram especially is a great pl- platform for you know people to connect from all walks of life. So please do go follow me and um, yeah, let's, let's, let's join the joint journey together. Yeah, great stuff. Well, thanks a million, Oren. You've been a fantastic guest. It was a real pleasure having you on, you talking through your journey. It truly was inspiring where you've come from and where you're still going. You know, you're still very early on to your career, as you say. So from all of us on the Leavey Speaking podcast, we wish you tons and tons of success with your legal career and, of course, poetry work and look forward to seeing what else you're going to be producing in the future. So from all of us, tons and tons of success and thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time.